Please turn with me to the book of 3 John, and good luck finding it. Although, for many of us, we have been in a series on the book of 3 John, and today we conclude that series with the fourth and final sermon in this series, A Life of Love. And what a book 3 John is. 3 John has taught us the priority of love. It has taught us the value of partnership in mission, uh, generosity, hospitality, and it's taught us how to think about troublemakers in the church. Uh, John is writing to his friend Gaius to encourage him in the truth, and this is such a rich little letter that even the closing comments, which we will look at today, are packed with insight and wisdom for Christian living. As we've been doing throughout this series, I want to read this letter in its entirety, even though we'll be focusing on verses 13 through 15. And I'd like to invite you to please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy and authoritative Word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles." Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony And you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. May God bless the preaching of his word, and you may be seated. The technological advances of recent decades have been incredible. 
in the early 80s, I was born in 80, and in the early 80s, most homes didn't yet have a computer. It wasn't until 1993 that electronic mail was called email, and it wasn't until 2007 that the iPhone was introduced. Some of you kids who are here don't even know what it is to hear the sound of the AOL dial-up uh, as you are getting ready to do your email. In his 1982 book, John Stott, he wrote a book in 1982, it's called I Believe in Preaching. He wrote these words that are remarkable and prophetic. He says, it is difficult to imagine the world in the year 2000, by which time versatile microprocessors are likely to be as common as simple calculators are today. This will lead to the probable reduction of human contact as the new electronic network renders personal relationships ever less necessary. In such a dehumanized society, the fellowship of the local church will become increasingly important, whose members meet one another and listen and talk to one another in person rather than on screen. In this human context of mutual love, the speaking and hearing of the Word of God is also likely to become more necessary for the preservation of our humanness, not less. That was amazingly 1980 and Stott saw it coming. The reduction of human contact due to technology and the increased importance of personal interaction. Now John says in verse 13 of our text, I had much to write you. And we've seen some of what is on his heart, but he hasn't communicated at all. He has prayed and commended the Beloved Gaius, in verses 1 through 8, he prays for him, he thanks God for him, for his hospitality, for welcoming these fellow workers. Last week, we saw him talk about Diotrephes, the troublemaker, verses 9 and 10. Verse 11 makes clear that we are to be imitators. In fact, we are all imitators. The question is who or what will imitate us, uh, will influence, influence us, and who will we imitate? Beloved, it says, do not imitate evil, don't be a Diotrephes, but imitate good. And then he says, whoever does good is from God. So he wants him to do good, but doing good is not how we achieve salvation. It is what reveals, as John explains in 1 John in great depth, it is what reveals that we have been born of God. Those who have been brought from death to life and born of God are then those who go on to do good. We're not saved by the good works that we do, but those who are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone are a people who are devoted to doing good. And then verse 12 gives a brief commendation of a man named Demetrius. These and many other points could have been greatly expounded. He says, I had much to write to you. And it's no surprise, given the situation in the church, that he has much to write to him. There is much on his mind. He has other things he wants to say, and there is a lot to be said. So why then, John, did you write the shortest letter in the New Testament? 
Why not write more thoughts? You have so much to say. Well, the reason that he doesn't write at greater length is because he is wise. His brilliance lies in his brevity. He says, verse 13, I would rather not write with pen and ink. Verse 14, I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. He explains his brevity by pointing out the inherent limitations of written communication. What we have in these last three verses are some valuable insights into healthy relationships and strong friendships in our own lives. And I want us to consider these lessons together in these final verses. The first point is this. We were made for face-to-face interaction. We were made for face-to-face interaction. It's interesting, uh, the letter of 2 John ends in a similar way to the way that we find here with an emphasis on the joy of in-person fellowship. In 2 John verse 12, he says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use pen and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. There is more joy in face-to-face interaction than in doing email. And all God's people said, Amen. There is, there is more joy in a hug than in looking at a screen. God has made you in such a way that the completion of your joy depends on the physical presence of other people. And isn't it the case, and I find it to be true, that when I am stressed, that when I am heavy-hearted, that when I am burdened and weighed down, that when the cares of my heart are many, so often it is the presence of other believers. It is the presence of the beloved of the Lord who bring peace and joy and perspective into my life. John is a model of pastoral care and relationships for us. He says, it wouldn't be wise for me to try to accomplish too much in writing. Face-to-face is far better. Let's wait and let's talk. The ESV Study Bible at this point says, sometimes pastoral oversight requires physical presence for successful execution. Sometimes pastoral oversight requires physical presence in order to be effective, in order to be well done. Because ministry is about being with people. It's about grieving and encouraging and walking with each other and giving wisdom and hope. As a pastoral team, we don't do much pastoral work over email. Uh, Even Zoom has its limitations. And the same is true with cultivating friendships in the church. There's something that that the great reformer John Calvin uh, once said about his friend. He said, if only he lived close by, a three-hour talk would exceed a hundred letters. And the same thing goes for texting. Um, This This is a call to see the value of face-to-face interaction. And it is a timely message in an iPhone generation that has a propensity to live on screens. Ian Hamilton, in his commentary on 3 John, commenting on this verse, says, In our increasingly impersonal cyberspace age, Christians need to make face-to-face communication a priority. 
we are not disembodied beings. Meaningful friendship and fellowship requires personal contact. Smiles and sighs convey a wealth of meaning that the written word cannot express. We need to make face-to-face communication and relationships a priority. That phrase, face-to-face, is a reminder of the embodied nature of life and of the Christian faith. Face-to-face, we are physical creatures. The God we worship is a God who took on flesh. The Christian life is face-to-face because the Word became flesh. God did not simply send us a letter He visited us face-to-face in the incarnation. He came face-to-face with a sinful humanity to redeem us from our sins so that we might spend eternity in fellowship with Him. Christ bore our sins in His body, and He then physically rose from the dead, that we too one day physically might rise from the dead to new life. And when He rose from the dead, John ate with him, and Thomas touched his side, and hundreds saw him. And the day is coming when we too will see him face to face. It says at the end of Revelation in chapter 22, by the way, Leo's going to be teaching on Revelation. He said, I didn't really give him that assignment. You gave it to yourself, right, Leo? We need to agree on that. It says at the end of Revelation, verses 3 and 4, no longer will there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And then here it is. They will see His face, face to face, face to face with the God who made us. And until that day, the Lord has brought us into the joy of this Christian life in which we live face to face in fellowship with one another. A second lesson from these final greetings The peace of Christ can reign even in difficult times. The peace of Christ, and I have prayed that each one of you would experience this peace today. You know the situation John is writing into. We looked at it, the turmoil that was there in the church. Diotrephes is making such a mess of things. Good people are being kicked out of the church. There's this power struggle, these traveling workers are being rejected by some. Gaius himself is wondering if he's going to find himself kicked out of the church for extending hospitality. And John, who has apostolic authority, is not there. He's not present. I'm struck by the fact that in the midst of all of that difficulty and all of that turmoil, John's tone in this letter is not severe. It's not alarmist. He's not anxious. His letter is full of joy and encouragement and gratitude and love. He is full of the peace of the Lord. And here is part of his final instructions to Gaius as he faces this mess of a situation with all of this relational tension and conflict that Gaius was facing. Verse 15, peace be to you. The church is a mess relationships in your life are a mess. You don't know how that situation is going to play out in your life. Peace be to you. 
Where have we heard that phrase before? Peace be with you. Those words have special meaning for John because he first heard them from his Savior. He would have heard them, among others, from his Savior, spoken by Jesus himself after his death and resurrection. In John 20, John records this, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. John was there. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side, and his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then John records that eight days later, Jesus appeared to Thomas, John 20, verse 26, and again he says, peace be with you. John could hear those words being spoken over him by the Savior who had died and risen for him. And because he heard it, he would never hear or speak those words the same way again. Peace be with you is a phrase packed with resurrection life and with eschatological meaning and with Christian hope. It's not a throwaway phrase. Peace be with you. We end our services with a, a benediction, a word of blessing. And by the way, I am so encouraged by how you as a congregation respond to the various elements that we have in our service. We have sought to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture and to have responsive calls to worship at times. I find my heart so filled with joy and thankfulness today for how God's met with us in this service and for how you embrace these various elements of how we are edified and how God meets with us. One of those elements is that we end our service with a word of blessing, a benediction, and that practice goes all the way back to the ironic blessing of number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you, what is it? Peace. Give you peace. Be with you. As you go out into peace, be with, may, may this peace be experienced in your life. Not just peace in, in the gathering, but, peace, but a life of peace. And how appropriate in addressing, in this letter that is addressing conflict and strife, to remind us of the peace of Christ. Leon Morris explains that this peace is not a negative term, meaning the absence of war and conflict. It is rather a positive term evoking the blessing of God. And friends, what I want to remind each one of you of today is that in Christ and because of Christ, this peace is available to you today. This peace doesn't mean that the war and the conflict go away. It doesn't mean that your financial situation improves and there's no longer financial anxieties and strain. It does not mean that there is no longer a diatrophies in your life. It doesn't mean that your kids will become angels. It doesn't mean that chronic pain and headaches will go away. Rather, the peace of God means this, that God himself is with you as your God and that he will bless you with the presence of himself that he will give peace, that he will give joy, even as you walk through the darkest valley. We face many trials in this life, but we have a good shepherd who is with us, who has promised us his peace. 
And so when we say peace be with you, it's not simply a word that is spoken as a, as a kind thought. It is channeling the promise of God to have his peace dwell in his people. That having peace with God, objectively, we would be a people who experience subjectively the peace of God as we move through this fallen world with all of its turmoil, with all of its difficulty, with all of its trials, with all of its loss and tears. Peace be with you. The peace of Christ can reign in our hearts and in our lives, even in the most difficult of times. A third and final lesson that we learn from this close, we're just looking at each one of these verses here, and this is the very end. The local church should be full of real friends. The local church, our church family, should be full of real friends. The letter ends, John 15, on this theme of friendship. The Bible has something to say about friendship. The friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. So what John saying, John and his co-workers are genuine friends of theirs. The friends greet you. And then beyond that, John is not only friends with Gaius, but broadly with the entire church. Greet the friends each by name. And this broad definition and understanding of fellowship that is taught in Scripture in these verses is very important to understanding friendship in life. John emphasizes the personal, individual nature of these relationships as well. Each member of the flock matters. Each is mentioned. Each one is to be greeted. So one commentator, Robert Yarborough, says the epistle ends with the image of Gaius greeting each sheep of the flock one by one despite divisions that may be present. That's what this letter ends with, and what a beautiful picture it is. Greet the friends, each by name. It reminds me of the, the name from the, uh, from the, cheer, the, the Cheers song. Uh, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're all so glad you came. You want to go where everyone knows. Greet the friends, each by name. This is, this is God's design for the church. Now, in a church our size, not everyone will know your name, and we all have limited relational capacity, but, but there will be in the church many who know your name, and they will greet you, and they will open their hearts to you, and they will number you among friends, and pastors will care for you. Here is a place in the church of Christ where you can truly and fully belong a place where you can find real community, a place where you can find real friendship. Here, Naomi's find Ruth's. Here, David's find Jonathan's. Here, Paul's find Timothy's. This is why, this is why community group, oh, I love the testimony and many more could be shared. Community group matters so much to me. If all you know of the church is what you experience on Sunday mornings, you really only know like half of the church because where we do, the, where we do this when I go to community, that's where we greet each by name. A community group meeting last week, sitting on the Donahue's back porch as we're talking about gratitude in our lives. That'll get you through the week. That will help you. It will encourage you. It will 
sustain you. That's what God intends for relationships in the church. And the church today needs to give attention, I think, broadly speaking, not only the world at large, but also Christians in the church tend to be deficient in friendship and need to give attention to the priority of friendship. There was one video game that was advertised by saying, don't have any friends, don't worry. With this game, you won't need any. No, 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 not. We will always need friends. I, I saw a recent uh, comedy video that made the rounds. You may have, so it was two comedians who were acting, but the guy was doing a fake podcast just so he could have a friend. And so it picks up, he's like, well, I appreciate uh, you coming in on the podcast. It's been fun. Hope you can come back. And then he pauses and says, um, I feel like I need to be a little honest with you. I don't have a podcast, and this is not a podcast we've been doing. And he says, I think I just wanted to talk with you and hang out, and I didn't know how to initiate that outside of the context of a podcast. So I pretended that I had a podcast when in reality, we've just been two men hanging out and getting to know each other. And the other guy's like, yeah, we've been talking for two hours. And then he says, what about that ad read? And, uh, and the guy responds, can I ask you a question? If I had invited you over for two hours to just talk, would you have come over? And the guy is like, no. And then, the, and then it ends with the host like, yeah, because they're both talking to mics. These mics aren't even plugged in. You know, and they're just... The world is looking for friendship. What a treasure friendship is. My... my favorite quote on friendship comes from J.C. Ryle when he says, the world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. This is what the world is looking for and this is what the church can offer like nothing else. This experience of friendship that is found so deeply in the church. How can you be a good friend to others? Give thought to that. Each one of you, I encourage you to value friendship. See your own need for it as a vital means of grace in your life. And then prioritize friendship in your schedule so that it doesn't get squeezed out by the busyness of life. Initiate toward, pray for others. This will bring them to mind more often. Move toward people. Have you ever asked someone to grab a meal? Have you ever asked someone to grab coffee or invited someone over? Look to do things with others. When you are building relationships, be an encouraging presence. Intentionally seek to be refreshing. Tell someone what you thank God for about them and where you see His activity in their lives. Deepen conversations by, by opening up your life, by sharing where you, you need help or where God is challenging you, what He's teaching you, and draw others out and seek to learn about them. And when you find a good friend, Hold on very tightly and do not take it for granted because what a gift friendship is. Sometimes we can think that, that friendship, and, and 
I've been carrying on my heart to those who may feel like their experience of friendship is deficient and don't quite know what to do about that. It's more than I can say in a message, but I pray that God meets you and He gives you wisdom in moving forward and that even as a result of these few verses that you find in the days and weeks to come, your experience of friendship deepening in the church as God intends it. One of the myths that we can believe One of the lies that we can tend to believe is that friendship requires finding people who have everything in common with us. Uh, So people that we, we, we click with and have everything in common with us. Same interests, same age, same culture. So naturally compatible people. D.A. Carson says this, and I love it. He says, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not Here it is, it's not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. And he says, in this light, in this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's a vision of what the church is called to be in its relationships, in its friendships. And do you know what we have in this room? Friendships. By the grace of God, friends who love each other for Jesus' sake, who are bound together by his blood. We are the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved friends who are linked by the love of God and are living for his glory. I shared with you the the John Stott quote from 1982. Uh, Decades later, as an old man, when he was near the end of his life, Uh, He spent his whole life as a a single man, lived a remarkable, powerful, influential life that did so many good for so many people. John Stott was asked in an interview, when do you feel most alive? I wonder what you would say in response to that that question. Here Here was his answer. He gave three things. Public worship, enjoying nature, and human friendships. And what he said is, I am grateful to have many friends, and very grateful to have the opportunity to enjoy their friendship. Stott was right, in our dehumanized society, the fellowship of the local church has become increasingly important. And so I want to exhort you as a church family, myself and each one of us, value this, uh, prioritize this, face-to-face the gift of friendship. May this book of Third John that we have studied together inspire us to live a life of love, that we would be a community of face-to-face interaction, of peace in difficult times, a church full of strong friendships that honor the Lord for the glory of His name. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now and We do this in order to receive grace from God and to remember the death of Christ for our sins. The Bible says that communion is for believers only. And so if you've not 
repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, we ask you to just pass the elements by, but please do observe, and we're glad that you're here to be able to observe what it is that we are doing. The ushers can, yes, and are distributing the elements. When you receive those, you can just hold on to those. I'll give further instruction, and then we'll take, take them together. Behind John's mention of friends at the end of this letter, we hear that teaching of Jesus in John 15 that Philip so beautifully read for us earlier in this service, where Jesus calls us friends. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he says, and hear this from our Savior, you are my friends. Jesus says he no longer calls us servants who are distant from the master, but he calls us friends and he brings us near. And he said that the night before he would die. Why? Because he wanted his disciples to know something. He wanted them to know and to understand that his death is in fact, and maybe you've never thought of it this way before, an act of friendship. It's not just a display of love, it is an act of friendship. The greatest act of friendship the world has ever known that has brought us into a relationship of friendship with the living God. Tim Keller actually says that you can think of the entire history of redemption, in a sense, as just a giant cosmic act of friendship in what God has done in pursuing us. Christ has saved us in order to befriend us, and what a friend we have in Jesus. It may be that friends in this life have disappointed you, but in Jesus we have a friend who will never disappoint. To be a Christian is to know Jesus as the friend of sinners and to be numbered among his beloved friends. Never forget this, that you have a friend who died for you. You have a friend who died in your place. You have a friend who took the judgment that we deserve so that we might be reconciled to God and made friends with Jesus, that we might be brought into this community of friends here in the church, that we might be united in Christ to live a life of love. Christ is the greatest friend of all. And as we celebrate this Lord's Supper, we ought to remember that we are loved by Christ with the greatest love that the world has ever known and that nothing can ever separate us from the love of this friend that we have in Jesus who has loved us and who has joined our hearts together in love as friends in the body of Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, let's take the bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, let's take the cup. What a Savior. 
and what a friend we have in Jesus Christ.